Here we go. Real quick. We'll, we'll go through them. Question number one. In what chapters do you find the Sermon on the Mount? Again, very important to remember, where's the Sermon on the Mount? Because it kind of sets us apart. And the answer is chapters 5, 6, and 7. Could y'all say that to me, with me together? Chapters 5, 6, 7. Sermon on the Mount, all right? Question number 2. In what chapters do you find a series of Jesus' miracles? Two chapters. Two chapters. Hint, they come right after the Sermon on the Mount. All right, chapters 8 and 9. You got these sets of miracles illustrating the power of Jesus. Question number 3. Which chapter do you find a list of the 12 apostles? Peter, Andrew, James, John, you know, all the apostles. And, of course, this is right before he sends them out on the limited commission. And the answer is chapter 10. Okay, the 12 apostles. Question number four. In which chapter do you find the limited commission? Hint, hint, hint. Chapter 10, right after the giving of the, of the 12 apostles. And then question number five. In which chapter does John the Baptist begin preaching? And that is Matthew chapter 3. All right, anybody know, knows anything interesting about this test? Anybody? It was the exact same test you took last week. <laughs> Rodney, I was in uh, Jack Lewis's class at Harding. And Jack Lewis was an Old Testament professor, just brilliant Hebrew scholar like Rodney is. Rodney knew him well. And, and Brother Lewis would read his notes, and over time, people would cop, copy down his notes. They would top them up. And so whenever you took a Jack Lewis class, you had one of two choices. You could sit there and write down meticulously for three hours his notes, or you could just find someone who had the previous years and copy them. Anybody want to guess what I did? Yeah, I copied his notes. And so I get a set of notes. I'm in school in 1982. These notes are from 1976. Same notes, okay? And, and as we're getting close to midterm, I'm looking through the notes I'd copied from somebody else. And they are 1976, midterm exam. And I'm thinking, this is 1982. He's changed up the exam since 1976. And so I did not study the exam. Anybody want to guess what exam we had? Same exact exam. He just changed the date on it. And I'm looking at this thing going, you idiot, study the exam. And so uh, I just got the idea this week, just give them the same questions and see if they got it, okay? All right, just to have some fun today. All right. Over in chapters 8 and 9 where you have the miracle stories. Chapter 9 is, is different from chapter 8 in that the miracle stories in chapter 9 are accompanied with a rising opposition and criticism of Jesus. Okay? It's the first time Jesus has been attacked by the religious leaders. And so if you go back to chapter 9, you'll see Jesus, first of all, in, in, in the very opening verses, being accused of blasphemy because of the guy that was lowered down through the roof. And Jesus, before he healed him, said, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, that's blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins except God. And, of course, Jesus is like, that's the point. And then he, of course, heals the man. 
He then goes and he, he calls Matthew and goes to Matthew's house and they have a big party and the Pharisees are outside going, why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? And so you see the accusations building. Next you have Jesus' question as to why the apostles didn't fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees did. What's the problem with y'all? Do y'all not like fasting? And then finally, Jesus is... <laughs> Sandra, that's okay. We needed that one right there at that point. All right. If anybody asks the question, does Pete like fasting? The answer is no. All right. And then number four, Jesus is accused of driving out demons by the prince of demons. Now, we're going to come back to this one today because it's going to be ratcheted up another level. Okay? And so chapter 9 introduces this opposition. When you get to chapter 12, this opposition explodes. Okay? And, and so you have in, in chapters 10 and 11, you have the limited commission, and, and, and then you have John the Baptist reappearing in chapter 11. You get to 12, and this opposition that started in 9 explodes. And what you quickly realize is that Jesus is, is basically beginning this war. And, and Satan is gathering his forces, and Jesus is gathering his forces. And as we just got through singing, it's time for soldiers of Christ to arise. And so chapter 12 begins with the apostles, and they're traveling. It's on the Sabbath day, and they're hungry. Uh, the Chosen does an incredible uh, description of this. By the way, we have a podcast uh, that Stan and John Mark Hicks and, and uh, who else... Yes, uh, Villa Cortes are joining them, and, and it's called uh, Chosen Conversations. And so it's a podcast. You'll see it in the bulletin if you'll grab one today, how you can tune into that. But, but the apostles are out, and they're hungry. And, and so in the Chosen, basically Peter grabs some grain, which you were allowed to do in ancient Israel. If you were hungry, you could grab grain that was along the side of the road, but there was a question, could you do it on the Sabbath day? And the Pharisees had ruled that you couldn't. Well, the apostles are hungry this day, and, and they start eating grain off the side of the road. And some Pharisees see them. And the Pharisees rush up to Jesus, and they confront him. Why are your disciples doing that which was unlawful on the Sabbath day? And here you go. Conflict. Here it resumes. And what's fascinating in, in chapter 12 is how Jesus deals with it. Because Jesus is going to give us a couple of insights that's incredibly important because of the conflict that we're in. We're going to say more about that here in just a moment. Jesus begins after the Pharisees said, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He begins by asking them, Haven't you read? He immediately goes to Scripture. And he starts pulling out examples that contradict the very accusations they're making against his disciples. And so he begins by saying, haven't you read what David and his companions did when they were hungry? And if you remember the story, David is fleeing from King Saul who is trying to kill him. He doesn't have a weapon. He doesn't have any food. His men are hungry. He goes to the tabernacle and he inquires of the high priest if they could have the showbread, which was only lawful for the priest to eat. And of course, after inquiring of the Lord, the high priest gives them the showbread, gives David Goliath's sword, 
And, and, of course, the Jews never criticized David for doing that. And yet he did that which was unlawful. And yet they're accusing his disciples of doing something unlawful that didn't even compare to this one. And then he says, or haven't you read? Again, haven't you read? He goes to the Torah, to the law, that the priest on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath. Yet they're innocent. They're there on the Sabbath day. They're offering sacrifices. They're putting showbread out. They're trimming the menorah. They're offering incense. They're working on the Sabbath. The priests are. And yet they're innocent because that wasn't a violation of the Sabbath since God had commanded them. And then he says, and if you had known what these words mean, Quoting from Hosea 6.6. By the way, he quoted that back when they criticized him at Matthew's house. Same exact text in Matthew 9.13. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He said, if you'd known what Scripture meant, you would not have condemned the innocent. This text is an important text for all of us. Paul is facing death. He knows it. He's written to Timothy, please come before, before winter. Please come, you know, because my hour is here. Grab John Mark, bring, him, but bring the scrolls as well. And, and he's been encouraging Timothy, you, you stay in Scripture. Stay in Scripture. You stay in Scripture. Why? Because all Scripture is God-breathed. Old King James Version is inspired of God. That's what that word God-breathed means. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the child of God might be thoroughly, completely equipped for every good work. I, I don't know of a time, at least in my lifetime, and perhaps in several generations, when, when this has not been the case. This last week, June and I attended the uh, National Renew Conference in Indianapolis on discipleship. David Young, who's the preacher over at North Boulevard in Murfreesboro, was the opening speaker. And, and David got up and he said, Listen, brothers and sisters, we need to realize something. For two and 250 years, we have been on a vacation spiritually in America. And what he meant by that is that because of the Christian influence and the establishing of our country, we were not persecuted as believers in Jesus in America for the last 250 years. But he said the times are changing. He said we Christians are fixing to join the Christians of the rest of the world in living as a minority and being persecuted by the majority even here in America. And he began to rattle off illustration after illustration after illustration after illustration. It's coming. And, and it's time that we recognize it. And it's time that we prepare for the battle. Now let me say a word about that. Brothers and sisters, this is not a political battle, even though it will manifest itself politically. It's not a cultural war, even though a lot of people tell you we're in a cultural war. No, what it is is a spiritual war. We're fighting the same war that God's been fighting since the Garden of Eden and that Jesus declared big time on Satan when he came and was incarnated. We're in a spiritual war, and we've got to recognize it because we're fixing to be forced to choose sides in ways like we've never done before. And at the very heart, it's going to be a question, and that is, do you believe that this book right here is truly the Word of God? Not just a, a nice religious book, not something that may contain some of the words of God. Do you believe it's the Word of God? And are you willing, like I said, my, my grandson gave me the illustration. Yeah, I'm not going to say it because I don't like it. I'm afraid a lot of us may not like it. 
But we're going to have to decide whether or not we're going to stand on the Word of God or not. And I love what David Young said. He said, we're in our Joshua moment. When Joshua challenged Israel, you're either going to uh, serve the gods of, of your fathers on the other side of the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And my question is, what about you? Scripture is absolutely necessary for the war we're in. I mean, it's what's going to ground us. It's what's going to equip us. It's what's going to prepare us for what we've got coming our way. Are you into that's, that's why I'm urging you. Memorize where these places are, what the texts are. Learn where the Sermon on the Mount is found because it is the greatest sermon ever preached among men. It's what gives us anchor for the days that are ahead of us. We've got to be in the Word of God. He then goes on to say to them, he says, I tell you, there's something greater than the temple. Talking about the priests serving in the temple, something greater than the temple is here. And then he said, not only that, the Son of Man, of course, this just tore them up. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And with those words, Jesus says, it's on. Let's go. And you're going to see it as it develops. Next story that takes place is Jesus goes into a synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. Again, in the Chosen series, this is an incredible video. And he's got this withered hand, and the Pharisees challenge him. Notice what the text says. Looking for a reason to bring charges against him. Looking for a reason to bring charges against him. They ask him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And Jesus' response is, well, let me ask you a question. If you have a sheep on the Sabbath day that's fallen into a pit, will you not reach down and pick it up? And, of course, every one of them would. They did it all the time. And Jesus says, is a person not more valuable than a sheep? And then he tells the man, you stretch out your hand. And, they, and he does, and, of course, it's completely healed. But watch what happens. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. You want to talk about escalation? And by the way, for Matthew, this is a preview of what's coming. This is the first, you know, hint. Something's fixing to happen to Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, but Les, we don't shoot people. We don't kill people for standing up for their faith. Brothers and sisters, our nation has changed. Friday night, a guy was out front of his yard shooting a rifle. 11 o'clock at night. This is down in Texas. And someone who was trying to get their little infant to sleep couldn't because of the loud gunshots. And so someone walked next door and said, Do you mind not shooting? We're trying to get a baby down tonight. 11 o'clock at night. And he was so angered that he marched over to the house, went in, and shot and killed five people. You think, yeah, but that, that's, just, that's just one example, is it? Gentleman this last week was blowing his yard. When a neighbor who didn't like him blowing his yard for whatever reason, I don't have a clue why, walks over and shoots and kills him. This last week, a man was arrested in Florida. Why was he arrested? He was arrested in Florida because some kids were playing just down the street from where he lived, and one of their basketballs rolled into his front yard, and when the dad and the little girl went to get it, he walked out and shot both of them, with the little girl going, why did you shoot my dad? Over a basketball rolling in the yard. 
Don't tell me that, that we're living in the America a lot of us grew up in. And you can go on with illustration after illustration after illustration going, what in the world is going on in our country? And so they threatened to kill Jesus and they began planning it. And we need to realize we're in a spiritual war. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Large crowds followed him. He healed them but warned them. You can't be telling what's going on. Why? Because the escalation is building. He goes on from there to quote from Isaiah 42, 1-4, a beautiful passage about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And what I love the most in that prophecy is the fact that he says he gives hope to the Gentiles, to people like you and me. And he does. And then after giving that hope, he goes back and a man is brought to him who's demon-possessed. And this demon has caused the man to be both blind and mute. And Jesus heals him. So that he can see and he can speak. And all at once the people are going nuts. Look at verse uh, 23. All the people were astonished. Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one we're waiting for? And the Pharisees are over here going, No! 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 Now how are they going to counter that? How do you take on Jesus when he's cast out a demon and a blind man can now see and a mute man can now speak? And their response is, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Another name for Satan. Now you know. Okay, here we go. Jesus is going to say, you you don't know what you just said. Because you just crossed a line you should have never crossed. Jesus knew their thoughts. Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. We need to take that to heart. It's true today just like it was 2,000 years ago. Every house divided against itself will not stand. We've all, we've all seen what happens when a husband and wife get at odds, or parents or children or whatever. I mean, division destroys. And by the way, it destroys churches as well. That's why Jesus prayed for unity among his people. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself and his kingdom won't stand. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they'll be your judges. Jesus just starts, you know, saying common sense tells you this. But then Jesus says something that is, is, is very scary. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I mean, don't, don't skip that verse. That's a powerful verse. One of the things we don't realize about Jesus is in the incarnation, Jesus emptied himself. When Jesus came down and became a human being, he left his omniscience, he left his omnipotence, he left a lot of his godlike qualities. He emptied himself. You say, how did he do that? I don't have a clue. One of the great mysteries of the incarnation. But Paul said he emptied himself. And so when Jesus was a little boy, he was just like the rest of us. Jesus didn't get ready to go to Sabbath school and his mother say to him, tell me your memory verse. And Jesus was like, well, I know it. In fact, I'm the one that inspired it. I can quote you a whole Bible. That wasn't Jesus. He had to learn memory verses like everybody else. In fact, Jesus didn't perform miracles by his own power. It was when the Spirit came upon him in his baptism that he started performing miracles by the power of the Spirit of God. And Jesus says, that's a sign that the kingdom of God has come up on you. And then he explains with an illustration that so oftentimes we miss. 
He says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. What's Jesus saying? Jesus said, I've entered the strong man's house. And when I'm casting out demons, I'm beginning to bind the strong man. And Satan knows what's coming. And Jesus is, is thinking, I'm going to eventually completely bind him. And you turn over to the book of Revelation and you see that's true. In fact, in the opening chapter of the book of Revelation, John sees Jesus and he's holding in his hand the keys to Hades and death, which means that Jesus has totally disarmed Satan. He has plundered his house. He's taken control of death itself and made it no longer, no longer something to be feared, the Hebrew writer says. So Jesus says, it's own. It's own. The work of the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary in the war we're in because it's a spiritual war. And brothers and sisters, our lack of dependence and realization of the presence of the Spirit in our life and the power available to us is hurting us. The weapons that we fight with are available to us. We've just got to take advantage of them. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus puts it as simple as I know how. He says, you're either on my side or you're on Satan's side. There is no neutral ground. Blake, we used to sing a song. It's been a long time that I've sung this song, but we used to sing a song. By the way, you have to make a decision here. What will you do with Jesus? Written, of all things, about 1910. I thought it was an old, old song. You know, it's 100, well, 120 years, you know. But Jesus is standing in Pilate's hall, friendless, forsaken, betrayed by all. Hearken what meaneth the sudden call. What will you do with Jesus? And in the chorus he says, what you will you do with Jesus? Neutral. You cannot be. And that's what Jesus just said. You're either with me or you're against me. There is no middle ground. You've got to make a decision. And we have to make that decision for ourselves and for our families. As a church, we have to make that decision. Are we on the side of Jesus? And then he gives the warning. So I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit has always bothered people. You know, what is this sin? And, and scholars debate it back and forth. I don't know that I have the an answer, and I know I don't have time to explore it in depth. But what it appears to be is a sin that, that simply shows that a person's root, everything about them, is, is messed up. In fact, the illustration he gives, if you follow up with this, and, if you, and by the way, if you're concerned that, that you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, your concern is proof that you have not. I really do believe that. And the reason is because of what Jesus said. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. And then look at what he says to the Pharisees. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil, not who do evil, but who are evil. In other words, Jesus says, let me tell you how deep your evil goes. It goes into the very roots of who you are. Therefore, how can you say anything good? I know sometimes we like to think that there's always hope as long as there's breath. And I've oftentimes said that. And yet at the same time, I recognize that some people can get so far away from God and Satan can go, get so involved in their life that it's like someone jumping off the Empire State Building. 
You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but once somebody goes off the Empire State Building, here's the question, are they a dead person? And, of course, you might say, well, not at floor 66 or floor 25 or even floor 1. But, boy, when you, that sudden stop at the end, they're a dead person. And I think that's what Jesus is saying about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Depict someone who's gone so far that there's no turning back. Now, how do we know when someone's gone that far? I don't know. God knows. But I know that if you're concerned that you have, that that's evidence that you have not. And so when people think, well, I, I, I may have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. If you're concerned that you have, that's proof to me that you have not. And so the day of judgment is coming. And Jesus is letting them know it. The chapter ends after some references uh, with, 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 with several other items. A lot in this chapter that I didn't have time to cover. But it ends with the Pharisees then just kind of shocking you when they turn to Jesus. After Jesus had healed a demon-possessed, blind mute, then they turned to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to see a sign from us. And Rodney, I don't know what the Aramaic word for this word is, but I'm pretty sure this is what Jesus said. Really? You want After all you've seen, you want to see a sign? I mean, you've got to be kidding me, right? And, and Jesus' response is, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but no sign's going to be given to it except the sign of, of the prophet Jonah. And of course, you know that sign. He says... For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights. And it's important to add the word only there. Only three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, which is a preview of what's coming as well. You see, the Pharisees are giving us a preview of what they're going to do, and Jesus is giving us a preview of what he's going to do. And then he said to them, let me tell you something. Jonah... When he preached to the Ninevites, they repented at his preaching. And let me tell you, this generation, no. And then he said, and the queen of Sheba, she came from the, older, you know, the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And one greater than Solomon is here. She's going to rise up and judge this generation. Because this generation, let me tell you something, they're, they're, they're wicked to the core. And then Matthew tells us something that we need to pay attention to very carefully. He ends the chapter with, as, as the people are gathering around, a story about his mother and his brother showing up. Now, Matthew tones this down from Mark's account. I'm fascinated as to why he does that. But, but you have to ask yourself, why do, do Mary and, and, and James and, and Joseph and Judas and Simeon, why do they show up? And if you go back to Mark's gospel, he tells us when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. By the way, you go to John's gospel, and John just tells you point blank, Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. As far as James and Simeon and Joseph and, 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 and Judas was concerned, he's just big brother Jesus. He's not the son of God. He can't be performing these miracles. Well, maybe he can, but we don't know how he's doing that. But he's just Jesus. And Jesus knows that. And he knows that Satan's trying to drive a wedge in his very own personal family. Satan will do that. Satan's going to lose, use every tool at his disposal to try and, and hurt us as children of God. 
And Jesus, knowing that, would eventually have to, after the resurrection, have a direct appearance with James to say, listen, I know you didn't believe it, but I am the Son of God. Judas would come on over, wrote that little book right at the end. We call Jude in our New Testament. He finally won his family over. But let me tell you, Satan was doing everything he could to drive a wedge even between him and his own family. And so Jesus looked at those around him and said, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Who is my... Who are my sisters? Because he's going to mention that here. Pointing to his disciples. Here's my mother, my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. And so Jesus ends by saying, who are you? Are you a part of my family? Are you a part of theirs? It's our choice. Brothers and sisters, we're in a true battle. And, and, and we have got to be as equipped as we can. I'm going to talk about a couple of things here in just a second about that. First of all, let me just say as we go today, and by the way, Jesus invites us to join in this spiritual war as a band of brothers and sisters. That's lesson five. I, I can't say how important that lesson is. And so as we go, first of all, I want to encourage you all this week. I know some of you have already been doing that. I want to pray for our seniors this week. Let's be praying for our seniors, praying for their families as they make this next stage in their life and praying that God will be with them. And so pray for our seniors. Number two, continue to pray for those in Hendersonville, Sumner County who don't know Jesus. Make that a daily part of your prayer. We pray for so many things every day. Let's be sure and pray for those who don't know Jesus. And then number three, commit yourself to the Word of God. Haven't you read, Jesus said, We're blessed here with some of the best Bible teachers. Let me just tell you. I mean, when I look at a church, I mean, we've got on from our children's classes all the way up to our adult classes, wonderful teachers. People who love the Word of God. And and, and boy, every Sunday and, and on Wednesday nights and during the week, I mean, we have opportunities to study the Word of God. Please, get involved in a Bible study somewhere. Small groups, I mean, we have all the opportunities. Please take advantage of them. And then number four, this week share with someone a story about your older brother. I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about Jesus. This came home to me many years ago when my my dad was struggling with Alzheimer's. I was still grieving from my older brother, his death at a very young age, and and especially dealing with my dad's Alzheimer's, I was like, Lord, if you hadn't taken my older brother, uh, this might be a lot easier because I really don't know what to do. And, and I remember as if God spoke to me, and though he didn't do it verbally, God saying, Les, you still got an older brother. And, 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 and he's at my right hand. He's the best brother you could ever ask for. And let me tell you, when that thought hit my head, it changed the way I looked at Jesus. Because I thought to myself, see, my my older brother who died was named Rex. And I thought to myself, on the day of judgment, if I go into the judgment hall and my brother Rex is sitting up on on the judgment seat, I'm kind of like, this is going to be easy, right? I mean, when it's your brother, you're like, this is going to be easy. Brothers and sisters, it is our brother. And his name is Jesus. And let me tell you, he's more powerful than any physical brother we could ever have. And so let's tell someone a story about our older brother. Our shepherds, elders, are going to be going to the walls here in just a moment, uh, along with some of their wives. If you have a need today, any kind, whether it's prayer requests, 
uh, whether you'd like to be baptized. We celebrated last week a wonderful baptism. By the way, just for those of you who may be wondering, the, the, the heater in the baptistry is fixed. A lot of y'all didn't know that last week, but boy, that was one cold baptism. And, and so, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was one of those where you're like, what happened to the heater? Well, blew a fuse, we got it fixed, but uh, if you'd like to be baptized, whatever need you have, we'd like to honor it. You can go right now to see one of our elders is together, all of us stand and sing.